0: Welcome to the Fueling the Future podcast, where we get to the bottom of issues, trends, and developments in future fuels and vehicles. I'm your host, Tammy Klein, founder and CEO of Transport Energy Strategies, and I'm super excited to have with me today Joe Britton, who is the Executive Director of the Zero Emission Transportation Association. Joe, welcome to the program.
1: Tammy, thanks for having me.
0: So let me tell you all a little bit about Joe before I get into uh, the questioning of him, the interrogation. (laughs) Uh, Joe has spent the past 15 years working in the U.S. Senate most recently serving as Chief of Staff for U.S. Senator Martin Heinrich of New Mexico. Prior to that, he spent five years as Deputy Chief of Staff and Legislative Director for Senator Mark Udall of Colorado, and six years with Senator Ben Nelson of Nebraska serving as Legislative Assistant. He also served as Senior Advisor to USDA Secretary Tom Vilsack, helping to oversee the Natural Resources Conservation Service, Farm Service Agency, and the Forest Service, and he helped Launch. I've been calling it Zeta or the Zero Emission Transportation Association alongside 35 member companies in November 2020. So, Joe, it's quite a distinguished uh, record in Congress, and I think it's going to come really in handy um, for um, ZETA. So for the listeners who may not be familiar, can you talk a little bit more about um, the Zero Emission Transportation Association, what it does, you know, how it came together and what you're currently focused on?
1: Sure, yeah, I'd be happy to. And, and we actually are now over 50 companies. And what's really exciting is that it's a pretty diverse group in both sector and size. Um, we've got, you know, kind of in the manufacturer space, what are, you know, now I, now I call incumbents, which is, you know, Tesla and Proterra, but we've got, you know, those that are, you know, kind of uh, aspiring and are developing uh, uh, vehicles and Rivian, Lordstown. Uh, workhorse faraday lucid they're all um you know you know i think they're they're they're, they're kind of facing some headwinds with covid and mm-hmm. chips and supply chains and uh all sorts of things but you know they're they're really um i think eager to break out and to be uh, real market movers and, and kind of developing uh, the advanced vehicles of the future. We've got battery supply folks, we've got Panasonic, uh, we've got some battery recyclers like Redwood Materials, uh, J.B. Struble, former Tesla, uh, started Redwood. We've got Lycycle, uh, American Battery Technology Company, uh, host of material supply. So whether it's cobalt or lithium, uh, copper, for example, graphite, um, charging companies, nearly every charging uh, uh, company in the country is a member of Zeta and then a host of utilities. So Con Edison, Duke, Southern, uh, Vistra, uh, PG&E, Southern California Edison, uh, SRP out of Arizona, Public Power, uh, all that are leading in the electric vehicle space. And, uh, and, uh, you know, kind of that, that diverse group kind of gives us a um, uh, you know, a geographic um, spread and, and an opportunity to go and talk to a lot of different members of Congress and and really send a message that electrification is good for your congressional district. It's good for your community. Uh, we're creating jobs everywhere. Uh, one of the things that was uh, that got announced last week uh, was the new advanced uh, battery manufacturing in Tennessee, which mm-hmm. is the the LG Chem uh, GM announcement. And I was really heartened to hear the governor described it as the single greatest investment in economic development in the state's history. And so those sorts of job creation opportunities where we can grow domestic manufacturing are gonna change the landscape. And I, I think the, the nice thing politically about electric vehicles is that you don't get stuck in the same partisan ruts. Um, you know, Yes, electrification is good for decarbonization. Yes, it's good for public health, but it's also really good for the consumer as we all know and saves them on fuel maintenance and service costs. But it happens to be one of the primary opportunities for us to outcompete China and to really double down on domestic manufacturing and job creation, which obviously everybody can get bought into. So anyway, that's a little flavor of what uh, Zeta doing and what we're up to. Uh, I guess I probably didn't didn't touch on the origin story uh, yes. as much, um, but the origin of Zeta really came out of, I think, a maturing of the EV sector and, and, and really not having a a federal voice, uh, an advocacy group that was really dedicated to electrification. And, and what happens, you know, I think in the past is you've had some of the legacy OEMs um, have, you know, joined different groups and, you know, they've been interested in EVs since the 90s. But, um, you know, in the past, and I think this has changed, actually, you know, it's maybe there's been some thawing in the last three months or maybe since November. Uh, But, you know, they've in the past joined some of these groups and then they don't want to talk about emissions or public health or disproportionately impacted communities or fuel economy standards or any of the things that really drive electrification Mm -hmm. forward because, you know, they've 98% of their business model is selling internal combustion engine vehicles and they know how to do it and they know how to make money and that's certainty for them. And so, um, you know, we hadn't, didn't really have a group for EVs federally that, could you know in a you know non-conflicted way talk about the benefits of uh, public investments in this space? And in some ways, if you're you know if you're asking for public investments, you're asking the public sector to invest in your um you know your endeavor. Uh, you have to be able to describe what the public uh, interest is. And you know Zeta is a public interest nonprofit, and so we really you know we saw an opportunity to I think accelerate the adoption of EVs by you know being a little more ambitious. And bringing all of these voices and economic players together to have a strong unified front to say electrification is good. Uh, it'll solve a, a host of challenges that we face as a country. And that, you know, we so we started developing the group and nine out of 10 people that we talked to said yes, which is, um, you know, it it, it uh, the timing was good. It was providential to have uh you know, the election uh, turned out the way it did and and Mm -hmm. just a lot of, I think, increased focus and tailwind from the entire uh, ecosystem to support electrification. So uh, not that we can take all the credit, but timing helped a lot.
0: Well, that's true, but I do think it is brilliant because if you look at other industries, especially in fuels or in alternative fuels or biofuels, you don't see the cohesion. And only with a, a joint unified voice cutting across these different sectors. And you're right, it's like the utility people had their thing, and maybe the battery people had their thing, and you know, so on and so forth. There's nothing to to sort of unify an agenda, you know, that everybody can get behind and support. And I think to get anything done in Congress, that's what they need to see. And that is lacking, I think, um, really in the liquid fuels and alternative fuels space uh, to some degree. Um, but that will benefit you all. Very, very well.
1: Yeah. Well, it's interesting. You know, Washington can kind of be a snake pit in the sense that you don't know whose tail you're biting. Uh, <laughs> but the or
0: who might bite you. <laughs> right,
1: exactly. So, it, you know, the thing that kind of I think is the you know the adhesive element of Zeta that keeps everybody together is that you know, we're our goal is that every vehicle sold by 2030 is an EV. And, you know, we might have, you know, different business models, or, you know, even people within a sector uh, might prefer that, you know, this, this policy turned out a different way. And, you know, kind of on the margins, there might be disagreement. But what holds us together is that, you know, there's 17 million new cars that are sold every year. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's 41 million used cars that are sold every year. And, you know, if, if we ever get to a an impasse, you know, we just all remind each other that, we're all better off if there's five or ten or fifteen, and ideally seventeen million new cars sold every year, and they're all EVs. Right. And so that's kind of the like the north star that we're always kind of keeping in mind to ensure that we make progress and are advocating uh, effectively.
0: So, to your point about one hundred percent ZEV sales, so what do you think, in your view, or from the Zeta point of view? What does the pathway look like to achieving 100% ZEB sales by 2030 in the US? What do, do you think needs to happen, you know, from your point of view to yep. sort of help get us there? And does the infrastructure plan actually go far enough and sort of getting us to that, that goal?
1: Gotcha, well, I'm gonna give you a long answer, so you'll have to... Get- <laughs> uh, so the, the simplest answer is that there's three main things. One is consumer yeah. incentives, two is infrastructure investments and three are strong fuel economy standards to send the right market signal. So you can, there's a lot of tributaries to each of those, as Mm -hmm. you might imagine, but those are the three big buckets is adoption, you know, addressing range anxiety, and then sending a signal to the market that this is something that's going to happen in the next 10 or 15 years, not the next 40 or 50. And the reason that we have to think about things in those ter- in those terms is that, you know, we all know that we need to make progress on net zero carbon by 2050. If there's cars that are rolling off the line in 2031 and 2032, those are going to be cars pulling up to a gas station in 2051 and 2052. And I so know. the progress that, and it's really, you know, and if you look about the adoption curve, for vehicles. So it's 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 almost a compounded annual growth rate. So it's an S curve. So the more progress we make in the next year has huge benefits for adoption down the road, and especially when you consider the secondary market. And so it's really important for us to have a strong consumer incentive. And in the old days, and by this I mean, you know, the, the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, the origin mm-hmm. the 30 D tax credit, that 7500 dollars yeah. the, the goal was to cultivate a sector. Now we've got two goals, which is to further cultivate a sector to outcompete China and to have, you know, superiority in the automotive industry in America again. So that still remains a goal. But the other is that we need to achieve emissions reductions. And mm-hmm. so now it is about, you especially know,
0: after yesterday's month. announcement,
1: <laughs> exactly. We've got a lot of <laughs> ground to make up and we, but the nice thing is that we have the ability to do it in a way that is not, you know, is not just, A uh, environmental goal. It's an economic imperative, and so I think that's where you know you look about the consumer incentives. And there's a variety of ways to do it. So you know, uncapping the 30d tax credit is the most important Um, right now. GM and Tesla are capped out, so we're telling American consumers that a foreign import can get a tax credit, but an American-made car cannot. So that's pretty
0: much yes.
1: So fixing that, but then thinking through what are the rebates that that could be paired with a tax credit, because the, the the biggest deficit with a tax credit is, you have to have a tax liability um, in order to take advantage of it. Uh, and yeah. two, you don't get to take it till your taxes at the end of the year. So you're separating the sale from the value of the credit. Yeah. So if you could go to a point of sale, incentive, and apply a um, an incentive that is not contingent on your tax liability, because many, you know, middle or lower income Americans won't have a $7,500 tax bill. So you can either make it refundable, or you can make it a rebate, mm-hmm. where you're getting it at the time of sale. Um, and again, 30D is going to be the primary driver for the light duty side. But uh, Senator Schumer, who's the Senate majority leader from New York has put forward the clean Cars for America, and it is a a rebate program to do just that. Um, It's what showed up in the American Jobs Plan. So it's in Mm -hmm. the infrastructure bill. So there will be strong opportunities for rebates. But I think the sleeper in this, when we think about how do we really drive adoption, 96% of uh, uh, drivers, once they go electric, won't go back. So it's Mm -hmm. important for us to get people in these driver seats. And so priming that secondary market is mission critical. And that's been an impediment for EVs because there's been a sense that I need to be able to afford a new car in order to go electric. And as the numbers bear out, 70% of Americans are not in the market for a new car. So the more that we can get those secondary market vehicles and a rebate to further drive adoption of EVs in the used car market, um, and you can prime that with rentals, you can prime it with fleet vehicles, you can prime Mm -hmm. it by just selling as many light duty vehicles now, so that two or three years from now, more of those are coming onto the market. So those are all huge drivers of what we need to do on the infrastructure side and the charging, there's a lot to kind of unpack there. But mm-hmm. you know, Biden plan, you know, Biden's committed to 500,000 chargers. He's got 15 billion in the American Jobs Plan to achieve that. Um, I think it's a really strong. Um, you know, first step. Um, you know, I think kind of like his vaccination goal, I think he will exceed it quicker. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think 500,000 chargers is going to be a down payment on, you know, what we'll need by the time we get to 100% EV sales. And I think the administration gets that, but that's where they're committing and where they're starting. Um, but I think they're going to uh, attain it. And I think we're all going to, you know, see further deployment as we, you know, see the fleet turnover. So,
0: do you see an increase in the actual amount of the credit? So, increase from seven thousand five hundred to let's say ten thousand dollars, or will that be conditional on perhaps you know one's income? I think it's.
1: I think it's possible. Again, I think the center of gravity for the consumer incentive will be uncapping thirty d, having it be a seven thousand five hundred dollar credit. I think the question is. What are are you know? You wouldn't be eligible for both the credit and a rebate, but potentially, what are the complementary rebates and? I think as part of the Clean Cars for America, they do envision uh, different kind of metrics that would get you up to potentially a higher credit. And some of those things might be domestic content requirements. It might be, you know, the retirement of a, you know, older, more polluting vehicle. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's, you know, I think there's a a variety of ways that you might be able to plus yourself up to a $10,000 credit under the Mm -hmm. Schumer plan. Uh, But again, I think 30D is going to be Continue to be the biggest driver and the most efficient way to drive adoption.
0: So, um, what is your outlook for you know for, for passage? Do you see that you know happening uh, this year? Will there will be some structural reform of at least, if anything, the the actual structure of the of the tax credits plus the the rebate? Do you see that happening?
1: I, I do. I mean, it's a mm-hmm. you know the the president.
0: I do as well, for the record. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I mean, the president put out it's 174 billion Mm -hmm. for electrification, which is a really strong investment. Um, It's not even limited to just the EV sections. If you think about the investments in domestic manufacturing that are also in the American Jobs Plan, um, the things that might cultivate an advanced vehicle sector, um, you know, maybe even even larger number. And I think that's um, you know a acknowledgement that there's a whole supply chain of component parts and critical materials and everything else that create jobs along that value chain that we can be, you know, incentivizing mm-hmm. and doing better as a kind of a north american um, economic development uh, measure but yeah. You know, the process, it, it's a razor's edge in Congress. And that's, you know, I spent most of my adult life uh, working there. Yeah. Um, we can spare zero votes in the Senate. Um, we maybe get to spare one or two votes in the House. And that's a pretty tight needle to thread. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there'll be some twists and turns and some surprises along the way, I'm sure. But I think, you know, this Congress and this administration are committed to you know, finally investing in infrastructure and doing it in a way that makes our economy more resilient and sustainable and enables us to outcompete you know, foreign economic uh, adversaries. And I think that's, nobody's going to compromise on that.
0: Yeah, I think what you said earlier, just said now, and what you said earlier, I think is is an important point that I think has gotten maybe not brought out in the U.S. as much as maybe I've seen it in Europe, but there really is a... uh, you know, an industrial competitiveness, you know, concern. I mean, um, and not just with the cars themselves, but um, with with batteries and, you know, battery advancements and, uh, and, and so forth. So yeah, as much as it's about de- decarbonization, um, as much as it's about serving the consumer, it's also about, you know, staying on the cutting edge. And we kind of haven't been there <laughs> you know so this is this should be of concern i think to many in congress um especially those you know maybe on the republican side like no you need to do everything you can to create this sector and to succeed in it and now's the time to to do that because china really is so far ahead especially in you know um batteries and, and battery batteries uh materials uh you know yeah. if, if i can say
1: well, I'm, uh, I don't know how you'll uh, incorporate this, but I'm going to put in the chat a, a referral, which is Issues in Science and Technology Magazine. It's an article mm-hmm. by John Graham, Keith Belton, and, um, and uh, Suri Z. And it's the title is How China Beat the U.S. in Electric Vehicle Manufacturing. Yeah. They, they invited us to write a response, which we've done and will be running, but it gives a nice historical context, uh, how China had the foresight. And this, you know, this is dating back to the nineties. Yeah, they knew they were not going to compete on the vehicles themselves. So they right. they and this they called them at the time. I think it was um, the uh, the new market vehicles, right? Uh, EVs, right? This was the early '90s, and they they kind of saw the supply chain and you know the world's economic reliance on critical materials is something that um, they wanted to invest in, and so they had you know industrial policy. To secure that, and they, um, you know, they've got a kind of a. a, a China has a goal by 2025 to further secure their supremacy in the space. And so, if we're not being diligent about outcompeting them and having a really, and I think that's, you know, it's an opportunity Mm -hmm. for us to show our capacity as a democracy to make smart decisions and think think ahead. And you know, really, I think, strategize on the horizon so that we're better off tomorrow. And I think that's something where, you know, they've been able to, you know, in some ways by fiat to do this. And, you know, I think, you know, they're, um, you know, they're, they're showing, I think, a, uh, an an investment and a commitment here that ups the ante. And that's why we need to prove that democracy you know, has the ability to invest wisely, even if we disagree on things that, you know, we still can say, this is the best answer. And this is how we invest for the future.
0: Yeah, it was. So I'll I'll post those, I'll I'll, uh, link those uh, materials in the post uh, for the podcast. But I did want to say, yeah, I mean, I think China was very prescient, because I think there was realization that, you know, they didn't have the best record manufacturing internal combustion engine vehicles. It's like, okay, but what can we, <laughs> what can we manufacture? And, um, you know, electric vehicles, yeah, just as you say, we're, we're, we're on the list. So I think this is a, I think this often gets lost. And you see the Europeans doing the exact same thing. I mean, they're building battery plants. Um, they're investing in electric vehicle manufacturing um, as as well. Um, you know, and they're doing lots of things on hydrogen, which is a whole other uh, a whole other podcast. but the the bottom line is it's as much about decarbonization as it is about industrial competitiveness. And I think that's really important for our country to to really consider. you know, do we want to be kind of left in the dust or do we want to lead in this? I mean, we've got some of the best research research labs and manufacturing you know, in, you know, in the world. So um, from a policy standpoint, I wanted to ask you, you know, you talked about fuel economy, we talked about rebates, we talked about um, incentives, um, infrastructure expansion, but I didn't hear you mention um, actual ZEV mandate mm-hmm. um, or car ban. So is the general consensus that really that's not the way the the, the, the pathway, the best pathway to to grow the market rather it's, it's more the, you know, the incentives and sending the strong signals with the fuel economy?
1: Yeah, I mean, we're taking a very supply side approach. And, and I think, you know, it's probably reflective of where Americans are politically. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I I would give a ZEV mandate uh, federally a 0% chance of passing. So that yeah. You might sense, uh, you know, some uh, triangulation of why we're choosing the path that we are. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's interesting, though, you do have, uh, you know, in the UK, a conservative government pushing um, a gas-powered car ban. You've got doing it. I just think the American way is a little more supply side. Ultimately, we need the consumer to choose. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is just reflective of society and where we're at. Um, that doesn't mean that we need to, I think, you know, lack ambition or to move slower. Uh, but it's incumbent on us, I think, to, you know, have a supply-sided approach where we're ensuring that we're telling a story about, you know, not only what's good for the consumer or for emissions reduction or for job creation, but we're really telling a American story where this is something where, you know, we're securing the supply chain and we're, you know, we're producing vehicles that solve, you know, families and communities needs and investing in the charging infrastructure and the various use cases to make this work Mm -hmm. uh, and, and to be better and to make everybody better off. And I think that's, you know, in some ways you end up in the same place. Um, I actually think, you know, when it comes to, you know, just understanding, uh, Americans and the choices that we make, I think just some additional kind of, um, you know, fidelity to consumer choice, uh, Mm -hmm. is something that people will end up appreciating. We can't have, um, in my view, um, EVs, uh, feel like a scary thing that's being forced on people it's incumbent on us to, I think, help tell a better story and one that's reflective of what is a far superior technology and product, uh, but how it can be good for consumers and good for, you know, the community. And so that's part of why, you know, I think you'll see us, you know, taking a more, I think, strategic approach. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, for example, some of the conversations that we just had, I tend to not lean into climate or to mining, although they're both very, you know, critical components mm-hmm. to electrification, but they just come with more loaded terms. You you start, you lean in on either of those issues and you automatically, you know, see people reverting back to, you know, kind of their heuristic ruts and other sorts of uh, norms. But, you know, you start talking about lining up solutions with problems and it's, you know, whether that's range or de- deploying, um, you know, vehicles that are, you know, meet different use cases. Might, yeah. you know, for some communities it might be transit, it might be utility vehicles, um, it might be multi-unit housing charging versus your single-family home, uh, different settings, but, you know, thinking about a comprehensive way to deliver value for communities is about, you know, is, is the opportunity we have and what we're focused on.
0: So last question, how do you see medium and heavy duty electrification evolving over the next five to 10 years? And then also infrastructure, both, I guess, on the light duty and the the heavy medium duty side.
1: So it's interesting. So your your medium and heavy duty fleet vehicles, they're more sophisticated buyers in a way uh, because they have, You know, they can run the net present value and they know what the fuel maintenance and service costs are down to the dollar. And, um, you know, they can make more, you know, longitudinal, um, you know, purchase decisions. And so that's an opportunity for us. I actually, you know, some people would tell you that the light duty side is closer to transitioning. I actually am aspirational about the medium and heavy duty. Uh, side. And the thing that we can do to really further support and cultivate adoption in that space is something that Senator Cantwell from the state of Washington is putting forward. Um, It was actually included in Finance Committee Chairman Wyden's um, legislation actually that was released on Wednesday. And it is a medium and heavy duty investment tax credit. So if you're the off taker, so you're the purchaser, um, you're spending, let's say $100,000 on a new utility electric utility truck, you can take a $30,000 credit. So a 30% investment tax credit for the purchase of those medium and heavy duty vehicles. That could be a school bus, it could be a transit bus. Um, There's a, you know, the the Cantwell proposal is really flexible. So I think that's something that we can do to really drive adoption. And the thing that's really important about the medium and heavy duty space, and not everybody realizes this, they represent, and I'll just use ballpark terms because it's a little easier to comprehend, But we're at about 10% of vehicles are your medium and heavy-duty vehicles. They represent 30% of carbon emissions and over 50% of the harmful emissions that really create um, health impacts in disproportionately impacted communities. So our progress in the medium and heavy-duty space is a mission-critical part. It's a huge opportunity for us to reduce the impacts of both carbon particulate matter, the sorts of things that are really, you know, leading to asthma and uh, and other sorts of respiratory diseases, you know, in in many communities. And and if you think about, I I think about uh, Congresswoman uh, Nanette Mm -hmm. Barragon on the West Coast and Lisa Blunt Rochester on the East Coast. They're two of the, I think, primary environmental justice uh, leaders in the U.S. House. In both of their districts, then at Barragon in particular, um, very heavy industrial. She has a a port electrification bill as well. Um, But you have a ton of uh, transportation corridors. And those communities are, you know, it may not be a crisis for your community necessarily. You may not think of internal combustion engine vehicles as a crisis for your community, but it is a crisis for many communities. And so I think the. The more that we can do on the medium and heavy duty side, the more it accrues benefits for those that, you know, have been suffering the most. Actually, was a a union of concerned scientists report um, estimated that black and brown communities breathe in 66 percent more pollution um, from from mobile sources like transportation. Um, And, you know, that's something that we can really, I think, obviously need to improve on. But we have the opportunity with medium and heavy duty vehicles to take a big chunk out of the, you know, the. The pollution that really is impacting families and communities in in really, you know, detrimental ways.
0: Yeah, I think I really think equity, um, you know, as a as a as a facet of environmental justice or as the key facet of environmental justice, I do think that will be, you know, one of the issues of of our time. And um, yeah, that that's been going on for you know, and and you know, in some cases, really largely unabated for years and years and years. In the meantime you know there's so much more science out there about the impact of air pollution on everything you know cognitive development alzheimers you know lungs heart i mean you know overall more more mortality rates i mean it's just you name it it's out there and i think people are much more aware of that now and it's concerning
1: yep well i think we we you know and this is dating back decades but you know, we used to have this, I think, sensibility that if we didn't see it and it wasn't something that we could like feel, then it was not a problem. <laughs> you know, out of sight, out of mind. La, 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 la. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I this is, this is, you know, I'm, I, uh, I'm from Nebraska, but in the old, this is a, like a, an old farm adage, but in the old days, if you were done with a car or a refrigerator or your washing machine, you know, back in the 40s and 50s, what you would do was you would roll it into the creek that was, yeah. a, that was the standard norm. And so you, you have all these farmsteads where you yeah. can go and see, you know, like the creek bed was where people would just put trash. Yeah. Uh, and that was, you know, it, again, reflective of the time. Yeah. But I think over the years, you know, we've realized that just because we don't see it anymore doesn't mean it's not a problem. Right. And that, you know, and I, there was a report to take you all the way from that, just to give people a visual picture, um, a report last year that we all uh, consume a credit card's worth of microplastics every week. Um, and I think yeah, that's the disturbing. Are, exactly. So, you know, we're coming to understand that we need to be thinking about things in in different ways. And, and it's not, you know, this is not a, um, you know, a... Uh, you uh, know, really fringe view of the world. I think it's becoming more mainstream that we need to be thinking about things that, you know, even when they're not really hitting us in the face every day, there's health impacts and emissions and, and really long-term, um, you know, health maladies and, and, and detriments that, you know, we need to be we need to be sensitive to and, and working to address. And, and I think climate change is one of those opportunities. Again, like I said, I don't necessarily always lean into climate change, but we're, we have a, a a real a real chance to do something meaningful here, and it doesn't mean that we have to live a lower standard or lower quality of life. We can do these, um, you know, these things, these policies, put these policies in place that makes everybody better off. Have superior uh, automotive technology, create better jobs, um, reduce emissions in the power sector. Um, and do it in a way that saves us money and you know, makes us more competitive. So that's, that's really the opportunity. It's, it's about, you know, are we gonna look forward? Or are we gonna look backwards? And that may seem simplistic, but that's the choice we face. And you know, 1980s worldview of technology um, and burning gasoline in your vehicle is going to be part of the past. And it's whether or not we race ahead and win this you know, global race for clean transportation or not.
0: All right, I'm going to leave it right there. Uh, that's the show. Uh, thanks for listening, Joe. I want to thank you so much for being on the show today and talking to me about this. I mean, there's lots of uh, lots of exciting stuff going on uh, in uh, electrification, and you're you're right in the center of it, right in the heartbeat, as okay. it were.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And folks can find out more at zeta2030.org. And we'd uh, gladly have uh, all the help we can in advocating to Congress the importance of uh, transitioning to electrification. So thanks so much for all you do.
0: Thanks so much, Joe. And if folks are looking for more information, uh, more analysis on future fuels issues, uh, uh, fuels, vehicles, transportation, energy in general Head to my website, transportenergystrategies.com, sign up for my free bi-weekly newsletter and rate this podcast so that people can find it and benefit from it. Thanks again.